Welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program, and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Sheba Vine, Senior Manager in the Global Privacy Office at Exact Sciences Corporation. She received her JD from Widener University School of Law and her Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Engineering from Drexel University. She is licensed to practice law in Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and is accredited by the International Association of Privacy Professionals as a Certified Information Privacy Professional. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource to compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Today, our team is turning the spotlight on Super Ninja Michelle Miller, CMM Practice Manager at Valentino Spine and Orthopedics. Michelle says working in a medical office has challenges every day, and the most important thing that I tell myself and my staff is to be honest and true to yourself and others. Also to remember that we're in the service industry and it's our responsibility to make a difference. Sometimes it's just a smile that can brighten another person's day. Kindness and compassion goes a long way. Well, that's for sure. So congratulations, Michelle. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We'll address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the, the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Sheba, a very warm welcome. It's wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here and partner with First Healthcare Compliance on this webinar. And so today we will talk about recent developments in health information privacy. Um, 2021 has been a very busy year, so we have a few different areas to cover. We will start off with enforcement activity by the Office of Civil Rights. We'll cover the HIPAA Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. We'll then switch over to the 24th Century Cures Act Information Blocking Rule and the FTC September Policy Statement on Breach Notification Rule. And then we'll end with an update on state data privacy laws. The Office for Civil Rights enforces the HIPAA implementing rules, the HIPAA security rule, privacy rule, and breach notification rules. Um, and they're mainly done through investigating complaints that are filed by patients as well as current and former employees. OCR has several ways of enforcing HIPAA. They do so through investigating complaints, conduct compliance reviews to determine whether covered entities are in compliance. They can perform education and outreach but uh, most of the enforcement is through the complaints they receive. So this graph here is of the latest enforcement numbers from OCR, which is current as of July of this year. And since the privacy rule took effect, OCR received over 270,000 HIPAA complaints. The top complaints deal with impermissible uses and disclosures of PHI, a lack of safeguards for PHI under the privacy rule, a lack of administrative safeguards for ePHI under the security rule, um, a lack of patient access to PHI, which has been a very large area of enforcement for the past two years, and then also violations of the minimum necessary rule. A large portion of the complaints OCR receives, about 65%, are not investigated because they are not valid. Um, here, the OCR determined that the complaint does not present an eligible case for enforcement. 
These include complaints where the OCR lacks jurisdiction because the entity is not covered by HIPAA or because the complaint is untimely or the complaint does not describe a violation under the HIPAA implementing rules. In 101 of these cases um, that were investigated, they were determined to violate HIPAA rules and resulted in civil monetary penalties or settlements, which resulted in over $135 million collected by the OCR. In 11% of these cases, there were HIPAA violations, but there was no monetary settlement. And these cases settled um, and resulted in changes in privacy practices, corrective actions, or issuance of technical assistance. In 5% of the cases, OCR investigated but found there was no violation. In 18% of the cases, OCR chose not to investigate and instead provided technical assistance to the entity, whether it was a covered entity or a business associate. Um, and OCR may refer cases to the Department of Justice for criminal investigation and has done so um, in 1,167 of those cases that were referred. Now, historically, OCR did not enforce the individual right of access under HIPAA, um, but due to a considerable amount of complaints regarding failures to provide patients with access or outside of the allowed timeframes, OCR did announce in 2019 its focus on enforcing the patient right to receive copies of their medical records promptly. The former OCR director, Roger Severino, stated that for too long, healthcare providers have slow walked their duty to provide patients their medical records out of a sleepy bureaucratic inertia. We, OCR, hopes our shift to the imposition of corrective actions and settlements under the Right of Access Initiative will finally wake up healthcare providers to their obligations under the law. And OCR has definitely stayed true to its word um, and has settled over 20 cases to date, all of which were initiated by a patient complaint to OCR. The right of access comes from the privacy rule and requires covered entities to provide individuals and their personal representatives upon request with access to PHI about them in one or more designated record sets. Individuals have the right to inspect, the right to obtain a copy of their PHI, and they also have the right to direct a copy to a third party. This last right comes from the High Tech Act and is known as the Third Party Directive. Individuals have a right to access PHI in a designated record set, which is a group of records maintained by or for a covered entity that are used to make decisions about individuals. This broadly refers to records that are used to make decisions about any individuals, whether or not they have been used to make a decision about that particular individual that is requesting access. Examples include medical records, billing and payment records, insurance information, clinical lab results, medical images, wellness and disease management files, clinical case notes, and may include medical records created by other providers. Information that is not used to make decisions about individuals cannot be accessed by patients as this is outside the definition of a designated record set. So this would include quality assessment or improvement records, patient safety activity records, business planning, development and management records that are used for business decisions, peer review files, provider performance evaluations, psychotherapy notes, which are defined as personal notes of a mental health provider that are maintained separate from the patient's medical record and any information compiled in reasonable anticipation of a legal action or proceeding. Now the underlying PHI from the individual's records used to generate the above types of excluded records or information does remain part of the designated record set. The privacy rule requires a covered entity to respond to requests for access within 30 days and allows for one 30-day extension, provided the individual is given written notice of the extension within 30 days along with the reason for the delay and date the access will be provided. OCR issued guidance on that 30-day timeframe really being an outer limit with the expectation that covered entities respond sooner. 
Specifically, the OCR guidance states that a covered entity may have the capacity to provide individuals with almost instantaneous or very prompt electronic access to the PHI requested through personal health records, web portals, or similar electronic means. Further, individuals may reasonably expect a covered entity to be able to respond in a much faster time frame when the covered entity is using health information technology in its day-to-day -day operations. In a few slides, we will touch on the information blocking rule in, a, um, in effect, which requires the removal of any unnecessary delays in providing access. Now, covered entities need to pay attention to where patients are located since there are eight states that set shorter response timeframes than HIPAA's 30-day limit. Under California, Colorado, Hawaii, Louisiana, Montana, Tennessee, Texas, and Washington, timeframes range from 10 to 15 days to receive a copy, with a few states requiring shorter timeframes for inspection of records. As for a covered entity's internal processes that apply to patient requests, unreasonable measures should not be imposed on an individual requesting access that would serve as barriers to or unreasonably delay the individual from obtaining access. Examples of barriers include requiring the patient to make a request in person or requiring the use of a web portal for requesting access without presenting any other options since not all individuals have ready access to the internet. Another example of a barrier is requiring the patient to mail the request, and HHS states that this introduce, introduces delays in the covered entity receiving the request, which ultimately impacts the patient's ability to access PHI. To avoid these barriers, covered entities should offer individuals multiple options for requesting access. The privacy rule permits covered entities to charge a reasonable cost-based fee, also known as the patient rate. OCR has stated its preference for providing individuals with access free of charge. Now, if a covered entity is charging a fee, it can only cover certain labor, supply, and postage costs. There are three different methods that can be used to calculate these costs. You can either use the actual cost, the average cost can be used, or the covered entity can apply a flat fee not to exceed $6.50. Now, before charging the patient, the patient must be informed in advance of the approximate fee, and the failure to provide advance notice is an unreasonable measure that may serve as a barrier to the right of access. In 2016, OCR published guidance which ultimately led to the SIOX Health lawsuit. In the guidance, OCR expanded the patient rate for an individual's request for PHI by making it applicable to records sent to a patient's designated third party under that third party directive we talked about. This meant that the reasonable cost-based fee applied and state medical record copying fees could not be charged. Now, SIEX filed a lawsuit challenging this, among other things, and alleged that these changes cost them over $10 million per year. The court sided with SIOX and vacated that 2016 guidance, stating that OCR was overreaching and acting beyond its authority. Therefore, the patient rate only applies to individuals that request access for themselves, and then the state rates can be applied when individuals either direct a third party to receive their records or um, also applies to medical records that are released under a HIPAA authorization. In the next few slides, we will cover HIPAA's notice of proposed rulemaking that was released this year. The modifications proposed to address standards that may impede the transition to a value-based healthcare system and other unnecessary burdens by increasing individuals' rights to access their health information. The notice of proposed rulemaking was released in January of this year and was a result of the request for information on modifying HIPAA rules that was issued in December of 2018. There was significant public interest in providing comments on the proposed rule, so on May 9th, OCR announced a 45-day extension to the public comment period, which closed on May 6th of this year. OCR received close to 1,400 comments on the proposed rule. We don't have an indication of when or if the OCR intends to finalize the rule, but the NPRM was included in the Spring 2021 Unified Agenda, 
um, which is a report on the actions of federal agencies um, and their plans to issue in the near and long term to really lay out the priorities of the executive branch. Additionally, a new OCR director was announced in the end of September, so we may see things pick up. If the final rule is adopted, it will take effect 60 days after publication in the Federal Register, and healthcare providers will have 180 days from the effective date to achieve compliance. In the next few slides, we will cover some of the key changes introduced in the proposed rules. The proposed rule expands patient rights by reducing the time limit for covered entities to provide patient access to PHI under the right of access from 30 days to as soon as practicable, but no later than 15 calendar days with a one-time 15-day extension. To exercise the extension, the covered entity must have implemented a policy to prioritize urgent or otherwise high-priority requests. The right of access currently allows patients to inspect and obtain a copy of their PHI at a mutually convenient time and place for the patient and covered entity. The proposed rule expands this right to allow the patient to view, to take notes and photographs, and to capture their PHI. A covered entity is allowed to establish limitations so that the patient does not have access to any other information and to minimize disruption to its operations. One of the examples we are given is a patient who views their x-ray, their MRI or sonogram while in the exam room and uses their phone to take a photo to send it to their spouse, which would be permissible under the, the new proposed rules. The next change applies to third-party directives. As I talked about earlier, the right of access allows patients to direct their PHI to any third party. This type of request must be in writing, must be signed by the individual, and clearly identify the designated third party, which is different from the HIPAA authorization. Due to the SIOX decision, the proposed rule would limit the patient right to only direct an electronic copy of PHI in an electronic health record to a third party, and the, re the request must be clear, conspicuous, and specific removing the written requirement and allowing both oral and written requests. In addition, patients may request their healthcare providers submit an access request for electronic PHI in electronic health record to another healthcare provider. The proposed rule provides clarity for patients on what fees can be charged for requesting PHI by requiring the covered entity to post estimated fee schedules on their websites for right of access requests and for valid authorization disclosures and upon request provide individualized estimates of fees for an individual's request for copies of PHI, as well as itemized bills for completed requests. The proposed rule introduces a shift in current standards. For situations when a covered entity is deciding whether to make certain permitted disclosures of PHI, which are in the best interest of the patient, the privacy rule allows the covered entity to disclose PHI without an authorization based on exercise of professional judgment. The proposed rule changes the standard to one of good faith belief. The standard would apply to disclosures of PHI to parents, guardians, or others acting in local parentas, disclosures for facility directories, disclosures when the individual is present, disclosures for incapacity or emergency, and also when verifying patient identity. The good faith belief standard is more permissive and would allow other workforce members of a covered entity other than professionals to make decisions in a patient's best interest. The proposed rule expands the ability of covered entities to disclose PHI to avert a threat to health or safety when that harm is serious and reasonably foreseeable. This is a change from the current serious and imminent standard and the proposed change addresses situations where a covered entity will decline to use or disclose PHI because they can't determine how imminent the threat of harm is. In order to reduce the administrative burden on covered entities, the proposed rule eliminates the requirement to obtain an individual's written acknowledgement of receipt of the Notice of Privacy Practices, or NPP. It also removes the associated requirement to retain copies of such documentation for six years. The proposed rule also modifies the content requirements of the MPP by requiring the header of the MPP to include language referring to how to file a HIPAA complaint, 
the individual's right to discuss the MPP with a designated person, how to exercise the right of access to obtain a copy of their records at a reasonable fee, um, and the right to direct a covered healthcare provider to transmit that electronic copy of PHI in an EHR to a third party. The notice of proposed rulemaking states that providing this information at the beginning of the MPP, it will improve individuals' awareness of their privacy rule rights. The last slide in this section covers changes for care coordination and case management. The proposed rules clarify that healthcare operations allows covered entities to disclose PHI for care coordination and case management for individuals by revising the definition of healthcare operations. Now this is primarily for health plans since the current definition is sometimes read to cover only population-based activities and some covered entities um, take the position that a HIPAA authorization is required before health plans can disclose PHI for individual level care coordination and case management activities. I'll note here that disclosures by or to a healthcare provider for care coordination or case management for individuals is permitted as it would be considered a treatment disclosure. Now under this change, an exception to the minimum necessary standard for disclosures to or requests by a health plan or provider for care coordination and case management for healthcare operations purposes is included. Currently, the privacy rule only permits an exception to the minimum necessary rule for treatment disclosures, disclosures to the patient for their own information, uses and disclosures made pursuant to an individual's authorization, and dis um, disclosures to HHS, as well as uses or disclosures that are required by law. So this would be an additional exception to that minimum necessary rule. Lastly, the proposed rule expressly permits covered entities to disclose PHI to social services agencies and similar third parties, such as community-based organizations and home and community-based service providers that provide or coordinate health-related services that are needed for care coordination and case management. In the next few slides, we'll cover recent developments within uh, the 21st Century Cures Act. Now, the 21st Century Cures Act was enacted in 2016 and promotes health information interoperability um, and gives patients greater rights in their own health information um, and is designed to assist in the free flow of that patient information. The act introduced the broad definition of information blocking and an acknowledgement of the broad definition the Cures Act authorized the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to identify through rulemaking reasonable and necessary activities that serve as exceptions to the definition of information blocking. In May of 2020, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health and Information Technology, also known as the ONC, released the information blocking final rule with an effective date of November 2nd of last year. And then due to the COVID-19 pandemic, an interim final rule was released on October 29th, which pushed back the effective date to April 5th of this year. The rule has a broad audience. It applies to three different categories of actors, which are your healthcare providers, your health IT developers, health information exchanges, and health information networks. Here we have the definition of the information blocking. So it is any practice that is likely to interfere with access, exchange, or use of electronic health information if it's com conducted by one of those actors. Specific to healthcare providers, the interference must be known to the provider to be unreasonable and likely to interfere with access to information. This applies to requests from the patient and from other healthcare providers. So it is an expansion of that right of access under the HIPAA privacy rule we looked at, which only applies to patients. There are two exceptions to information blocking, and this is when a practice is required by law or one of the eight exceptions to the ONC's rule apply. The information blocking definition applies to the access, exchange, or use of electronic health information, or EHI. For the first 18 months, EHI refers to the information contained in the data classes set forth in the USCDI standard, which is shown on this slide. The USCDI standard is a set of health data classes and data elements for interoperable health information exchange. If a patient or provider request is not included as a data element on this standard, 
then the rule will not apply to the request. However, once that 18-month period comes to an end, which is on October 6th of next year, the definition of EHI will track electronic protected health information within a designated record set as it's defined by HIPAA. Now, ONC introduced eight different exceptions to the information blocking definition. The exceptions fall into two categories. Five exceptions involve not fulfilling requests to access, exchange, or use EHI, meaning that the practice will not constitute information blocking. Three of the exceptions still require providing access, use, or exchange as requested, but involve modified procedures for fulfillment. Now, if a provider does not satisfy one of the exceptions, this does not in and of itself mean the activity constitutes information blocking and will instead need to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Exceptions that involve not fulfilling requests to access, exchange, or use electronic health information include the preventing harm exception. This exception allows an actor to engage in practices that are reasonable and necessary to prevent harm to a patient or another person and applies where there is a reasonable belief that that practice will substantially reduce a risk of harm. The privacy exception protects an individual's privacy where the use or disclosure of electronic health information is prohibited under state or federal privacy laws. The infeasibility exception applies when it is impractical to fulfill an electronic health information request due to an uncontrollable event such as a natural or human-made disaster public health emergency, public safety incident, and other types of events, or if the electronic health information cannot be unambiguously segmented. The security exception protects the security of electronic health information and must be directly related to safeguarding the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of electronic health information for it to apply. In addition, it must be tailored to specific security risks and implemented in a consistent and non-discriminatory manner. The health IT performance exception recognizes that for health IT to perform properly and efficiently, it must be maintained and improved requiring the health IT to be taken offline temporarily. Um, that is so long as the measures are reasonable and necessary and for the benefit of the overall performance of health IT. The last three exceptions allow certain flexibility in the content and manner of fulfillment, the charging of fees, and licensing of interoperability elements uh, without constituting information blocking. However, they still require fulfillment of a request for access, use, or exchange of electronic health information. Here we will spend some time on the interaction and differences with HIPAA. When it comes to requests from other healthcare providers, the information blocking rule requires certain disclosures in situations where the HIPAA privacy rule only permits but does not require disclosure. For instance, the HIPAA privacy rule permits covered entities to exchange electronic protected health information for treatment purposes. Under the information blocking rule, unless an exception applies or the activity or practices required by law, a healthcare provider that receives a request from another provider is required to provide that requested access. It is important to understand that protections and controls under HIPAA are not diminished by the information blocking rule, meaning the rule does not require access, exchange, or use of electronic health information in a manner that is not permitted under the HIPAA privacy rule. If a covered entity is required to obtain the individual's HIPAA authorization before providing access, then the individual's refusal to provide that authorization would justify the covered entity's refusal to provide access under the privacy exception. As another example, the HIPAA privacy rule permits a covered entity to share information with another covered entity for quality improvements. Um, if it has verified that the requesting entity has a relationship with the patient whose information is being requested. Where the covered entity cannot establish if that relationship exists, it would not be information blocking for the covered entity to then refuse access. This is a FAQ taken from the healthit.gov website 
and is an area where providers will need to review their policies and procedures for patient right of access request, if a provider meets the required time frame under the HIPAA privacy rule, the question is, is it safe to assume that the practice is not considered information blocking? And the ONC's answer to this is no. The information blocking regulations have their own standalone provisions. The fact that a provider meets its obligations under another applicable law, such as HIPAA, does not automatically demonstrate that that practice does not implicate the information blocking definition. If the provider is able to promptly fulfill requests but chooses instead to engage in a practice that delays fulfilling those requests, that practice could constitute an interference under the information blocking regulation. HIPAA compliance will not always equate to compliance with the information blocking rule, and providers will need to assess their policies and procedures under both laws. Our last slide on this topic is enforcement, which is under the authority of the Office of Inspector General. The penalties for actors other than healthcare providers can rise up to 1 million per violation, which applies to health IT developers, health information networks, and health information exchanges. As for healthcare providers, this is still forthcoming. The ONC noted that appropriate incentives will be established by the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Now we'll turn to the FTC's breach notification rule. As we know, HIPAA is not an overall healthcare privacy rule. It does not regulate health information that is held by entities that do not meet the definitions of covered entity or business associate. This leaves a large volume of health data that is unregulated. And as tech companies continue to expand in the healthcare space, more health data will be generated. Pursuant to the High Tech Act, the FTC issued a health breach notification rule in 2009 with the goal of bridging the gap in breach reporting obligations for entities that collect individually identifiable health information but are not governed by HIPAA. The rule requires vendors of personal health records and personal health records related entities to, breach, <clears throat> to report breaches of security to the FTC to individuals and in certain circumstances, the media. Under the rule, a vendor of personal health records is an entity not subject to HIPAA that collects individually identifiable health information drawn from multiple sources into an electronic record that is managed, shared, and controlled by or primarily for the individual. Personal health record related entities include entities not subject to HIPAA that send information to these personal health records. However, since 2009, only two companies have notified the FTC of a breach involving more than 500 individuals, and to date, the FTC has not enforced the rule. In recognition of the proliferation of apps and connected devices that capture sensitive health data, the FTC issued a policy statement on September 15th that expands those entities subject to its rule. The FTC states that health apps and connected devices are healthcare providers because they furnish healthcare services or supplies, explaining that if they are other, not otherwise subject to HIPAA and pull information, some of which is health information from multiple sources, they are subject to the rule. The FTC considers apps covered by the rule if they are capable of drawing information from multiple sources, such as through a combination of consumer inputs and APIs. As an example, the FTC stated that an app that collects information directly from consumers has the technical capacity to draw information through an API that enables syncing with the consumer's fitness tracker is now covered by the rule. The policy statement also stated that an app that draws information from multiple sources is covered even if the health information only comes from one source. The FTC provided an example of a blood sugar monitoring app that draws health information only from one source, such as from a consumer inputting his or her blood sugar levels, with the app taking non-health information from another source, such as combining it with dates from your phone's calendar as being covered by the rule. The FTC reminded entities that a breach is not limited to cybersecurity intrusions or nefarious behavior, and that incidences of unauthorized access 
including sharing of covered information without an individual's authorization, does trigger the notification obligations under the rule. The policy statement concludes by stating that the FTC expects to begin enforcing the rule. Um, now, some have said that the FTC is overreaching in its definition of personal health records, so we'll see how this really plays out and how vigorously the FTC plans to enforce its new guidance. Our last few slides will cover state privacy laws that are a result of the U.S.'s secretarial approach to privacy, where laws regulate specific industries instead of a unified approach um, that we've seen that is taken by other countries. But as we see more states take data protection into their hands, we will likely see a nationwide federal data privacy law pass. And in this section, we will look at the new privacy laws that have or will be coming into effect. Starting with California as a trailblazer in being the first state to pass a comprehensive privacy law, the California Consumer Privacy Act became effective January 1st of last year. It was sponsored by a real estate developer turned privacy advocate, Alistair Mattaggart, and the CCPA was initially proposed as a ballot initiative, um, but soon after a deal was brokered with the California legislature, which agreed to pass it in return for a withdrawal of the ballot initiative. The legislature has been very active in passing amendments to the law and recently passed three amendments in October, um, one of which was to include the addition of genetic information to the definition of personal information, which will become effective January 1st of next year. The CCPA applies to for-profit entities doing business in California, um, and as a threshold, it must collect or process personal information of California residents and has an annual gross revenue in excess of 25 million, or it annually collects, sells, or shares for commercial purposes the personal information of over 50,000 consumers, households, or devices, or the last threshold being if it derives more than 50% of annual revenue from selling personal information. The CCPA provides California consumers with new rights, including the right to notice before or at the point of collection of the types of personal information collected and its uses. It provides consumers with rights to access personal information, a right to request deletion, and a right to opt out. That opt out is for having personal information sold. For the right to opt out, the CCPA defines the term sale very broadly to include not only the sale or renting of personal information, but also any release, dissemination, transfer, or otherwise communicating personal information for consideration. Employees are temporarily limited in the rights they have over personal information, and there's also a business-to-business -business exception for data collected from a consumer that is acting as an employee or in a similar capacity on behalf of a business. While the CCPA does not provide a blanket exception for covered entities or business associates on an organization-wide basis, it does exclude PHI collected by a covered entity or business associate, as well as any patient information that is also maintained in the same manner as PHI. So covered entities that meet one of the CCPA thresholds should review the types of data it handles, how it's classified, and how it's impacted by the law. As originally enacted, the CCPA included a definition of de-identified information that did not align with HIPAA. This meant that PHI de-identified under the safe harbor or expert determination methods in accordance with the privacy rule would still constitute personal information under the CCPA and be subjected to the law. An amendment in 2020 fixed this definition um, and to fix the disconnect by expressly accepting personal information that is de-identified in accordance with HIPAA and came with a few conditions for those businesses that are subject to the CCPA. It prohibits re-identification of de-identified data unless it is for treatment, payment, or healthcare operations under HIPAA. 
It also allows re-identification for research under the common rule or for public health activities. Businesses that sell or disclose HIPAA de-identified information must state so in their privacy notice and also identify the method used for de-identification. And as of January 1st of this year, the CCPA requires specific contract language that involves a sale or license of de-identified information where one of the parties resides or does business in California. It includes language to identify the data has been de-identified and its patient information, language prohibiting re-identification of the information, prohibiting redisclosure, and requiring any subcontractors to be bound by the same conditions. On November 3rd of last year, Californians voted to approve a ballot measure that created the California Privacy Rights Act, which amends and expands the CCPA. It becomes effective January 1st of 2023 and includes a number of changes. The CPRA modifies the thresholds for businesses to be subject to the new law by doubling that processing threshold number of consumers or households from 50,000 to 100,000. It also expands applicability to businesses that generate most of their revenue from sharing personal information and not just selling it. It introduces a new regulated category of personal information named sensitive personal information that has additional use, disclosure, and opt-out requirements. Sensitive personal information includes precise geolocation, information relating to race, ethnicity, religious or philosophical beliefs, and health information, among other information. Other new rights include the right to correct personal information, the right to opt out of and obtain information on automated decision-making technology, and the law also makes modifications to existing consumer rights. It adds contract requirements for selling, sharing, and disclosing personal information, and adds principles of data minimization, purpose limitation, and storage limitation. The act requires that personal information is not to be retained for longer than is reasonably necessary for the specific disclosed purposes and limits the collection, use, retention, and sharing of personal information to what is reasonably necessary. It expands the existing opt-out right to include both the sale and sharing, which has a huge impact for ad tech companies. Um, the law provides for an extension of the employee and business-to-business -business exemption we talked about, um, which will now expire January 1st of 2023. And it requires businesses to conduct annual cybersecurity audits and regular risk assessments for processing activities that present a significant risk to consumer privacy. Lastly, it establishes the California Privacy Protection Agency, which is a new enforcement agency that replaces the Attorney General's Office as a regulator for the CPRA. The agency is responsible for issuing regulations by July 1st of 2022 and recently sought comments in a number of areas as a preliminary step to rulemaking. On March 2nd of this year, Virginia became the second state to enact a comprehensive data privacy law titled the Virginia Consumer Data Protection Act, which comes into effect January 1st of 2023. The law uses terminology from the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, referring to personal data instead of personal information. In addition to um, using controllers and processor terminology, controllers are companies that are res responsible for determining the purpose and means of processing of personal data, and processors are companies that process personal data on a controller's behalf. As for applicability, the CDPA applies to persons that conduct business in the state or produce products or services that are targeted to Virginia residences and that control or process personal information of at least 100,000 consumers, which are Virginia residents or those businesses that control or process the data of at least 25,000 consumers and make 50% or more of their gross revenue from the sale of personal data. The CDPA grants consumers the right to notice, access to correction, deletion of personal data, and to obtain copies of personal data. It also includes rights to opt out. 
expressly excluded from these rights are personal data associated with individuals acting in commercial or employment context. The law also defines sensitive personal data and requires obtaining express consent in the form of an opt-in prior to collecting and processing such data, which is a shift from California that only requires a right to opt out of that type of sensitive data. Similar to California, the law requires businesses to conduct and document data protection assessments to identify risks associated with the handling of certain personal health information. It also addresses contract requirements for data processing and principles of data minimization, retention, and purpose limitation for processing personal data. Interestingly, the CDPA has broad exemptions for entities already covered by certain federal laws that include data privacy and security provisions, and also includes separate exemptions for the types of data. This differs from California's approach to exemptions which only exclude certain types of information. From a reading of the law, it does not apply to covered entities or business associates subject to HIPAA. It also exempts PHI and other information that is treated in the same manner, as well as de-identified data. Now, the Attorney General has exclusive authority to enforce violations of the CDPA, and unlike California, consumers do not have a private right of action to sue companies for alleged violations. This takes us to our last slide on the Colorado's Privacy Act that was signed into law on July 8th of this year. The new law is set to take effect on July 1st of 2023 and joins California and Virginia in offering its residents protection for personal information. It has a number of similarities to the privacy laws in both of these states. To fall within scope of the CPA, the entity must conduct business in Colorado or sell product or services that target Colorado residents and either control or process personal data of 100,000 or more consumers during a calendar year, or derive revenue or receive discounts on the price of goods or services from the sale of personal data and processes or controls data of at least 25,000 consumers. The consumer rights under the CPA are very similar to the rights established by Virginia CDPA by providing consumers the right to notice, access, correct, delete, and obtain copies of personal data and includes rights to opt out. Mirroring Virginia, individuals acting in a commercial or employment context are excluded from these rights. Similar to the other laws we reviewed, the CPA also regulates sensitive data. It requires opt-in consent prior to collecting or processing sensitive data. And similar to Virginia, the law requires controllers to conduct and document data protection assessments before processing personal data that presents a heightened risk of harm to the consumer. It includes contract requirements for data processing and addresses principles of data minimization, transparency, and purpose limitation for processing personal data. The CPA does not provide an entity-level exemption for entities governed by HIPAA, so this means that covered entities and business associates do not have a blanket exception from Colorado's law. Instead, the law provides data type exemptions by exempting PHI that is collected, stored, and processed by a HIPAA-covered entity or business associate. Other information maintained in the same manner as PHI is also excluded if it's held by a covered entity or business associate. Uh, it also excludes documents created by a covered entity for HIPAA compliance purposes and data that has been de-identified in accordance with HIPAA. Enforcement is brought by the Colorado's Attorney General and State District Attorneys, and the Attorney General has broad rulemaking authority. Um, like Virginia, there is no private right of action for its consumers. So this takes us to the end of the presentation. We've covered a lot of ground here, and to conclude, I just emphasize the importance of healthcare professionals to stay updated in the data privacy space um, to help their organizations reduce risk, to keep data safe, and remain compliant as new obligations continue to emerge in this area. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll turn it back to Catherine. Okay, so thank you so much, Sheba. That was a really wonderful presentation and full of a lot of great information. I do have a few questions. 
So the first one is, since there are no penalties set out for healthcare providers under information blocking, can compliance within these regulations, um, can that wait? That's a good question. And Catherine, I think taking that approach is going to present considerable amount of risk. I'll just say that. Um, the information blocking rule went into effect April 5th. So this is when compliance starts. And know that individuals can file complaints regarding inf information blocking practices. So if you get on the OIG's hit list, you get their attention. It's, it's not gonna look good if your argument is that you're waiting for enforcement guidance. Um, also know that if, if you've got a information blocking regulation um, violation, you might also be looking at non-compliance with HIPAA if it's involving a patient request for access. Um, so again, I, I don't think that's a very good approach. Okay, all right, great. Okay, we have another question here. Is a request from a patient for medical records the same as, a, as the patient authorization that directs records to another party. Could you clarify that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So they are, they are very different. Um, patient right of access, that is a required use of PHI under the privacy rule. Um, so if you get a request from a patient to access their information, either from that patient or from their personal representative, the covered entity is required to respond. Um, and required to provide the, those, you know, medical records if there isn't grounds for denial. Now, on the other hand, a HIPAA authorization gives the covered entity permission to disclose PHI, but it's not required under the privacy rule. Um, and the authorization is signed by, you know, the patient. Um, and but it's not a it's not a required use of PHI. So that's the distinction: permitted use versus a required use. Um, for HIPAA authorization, there is very specific language that goes into the authorization that does not apply to the patient request. And um, the Department of Health and Human Services does have really good guidance document on this. Um, I believe the title is Right of Access, so it's definitely worth checking out. Okay, great. Um, well, I wanted to thank you so much for being here today, Shiva. Did you have any other words of advice or anything that you'd like to leave with us today that perhaps um, either you didn't cover or that you wanted to um, just make sure that we um, that we remember or or thought of? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's just you know important to be vigilant in this area, especially with the patient right of access. There's a lot of risk here when you're not in compliance because. Um, you know, the OCR is very focused in that regard. Um, so I would just say, make sure you are looking at your policies and procedures and practices to make sure they align with the law, as well as staying tuned on updates with, you know, possible changes to HIPAA. Great, great. Well, thank you again so much, Sheba. We really, really appreciated having you here today. It's really lovely to talk to you and, um, I, I really wanted to thank you for being here, so thanks. Thank you so much, Catherine. Okay, well, um, attendees, please use the contact information that has been provided. Um, if you think of any other questions um, afterwards, you can send us those and we'll forward them on to Sheba for you. Uh, please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it separately. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.